0: This podcast is presented by the Prince George's County Memorial Library System.
1: Hi, this is Heather with These Books Made Me. Today we're back with a special bonus episode. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Duncan, Senior Science Advisor at the Optical Society. He has 32 years of experience as an optical physicist for the Navy and has a lot to say about the science in Wrinkle in Time. Hi,
0: Mike. Thanks for coming on to talk to us today about A Wrinkle in Time. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background as it relates to physics and uh, your
1: history with A Wrinkle in Time? So first of all, it's great to be here with you to do this. I think this is going to be fun. So my background is physics. I am a physicist. I graduated with a degree in applied physics and worked all my career as a physicist. So I'm pretty deeply embedded in physics. And uh, science. I have in front of me the copy of the book that my wife and I own. And it's the 1968 printing. And the book came out in 1962 and won the Newbery in 1963. And so um, I believe this was my wife's copy, and she probably read it when she was 13 years old. So it was part of our, our library from from that point on. I didn't read it until I was probably in my 20s. It had a huge impact on my wife's kind of feeling towards books and uh, her love for for the book itself. I certainly enjoyed it a whole lot, thought it was great, a lot of fun, But I don't think it was a life-changing experience like what my wife has said. So um, we have a very long history with this book at this point.
0: You took the time to reread this book for this interview. How did it compare to your previous reads? And how accurate or not was the physics
1: content? So these are great questions. I did reread the book. And I found... I was not. I did not enjoy it. I did not get the same kind of uh, glow of satisfaction after reading it as I did when I was in my twenties, and I don't think that's too strange. And in in terms of the physics content and how accurate it was, this is not, in my opinion, science fiction. I think we're going to talk about that maybe in the next question. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's not science fiction. The the science that's in here is uh, a speculative and an unknown. We're talking about travel through the fourth dimension or the fifth dimension and using uh, physics that we don't understand at, at this point. So that's the speculative part. Of course, there are other aspects talked about math and other things that that come up, which, again, I, I, I would love to to just touch on. That are correct in terms of the physics, but they are placed in just little snippets of places in the book where most of the rest of the book kind of ignores any physics or any science. And a really good example of that, after rereading it, it struck me that at one point in the book, our, our characters are taken on basically flying centaurs and they're taken up to a high altitude. But before they actually uh, go on that journey, they're they're told to pick flowers uh, in this meadow. And they're supposed to hold these flowers up to their nose as they reach high altitudes, which they do. And that allows them to breathe. So the idea that there's a thin atmosphere is followed, scientifically accurate. And yet so much of the other parts of the book, the science is not so much uh, not there or wrong. It's just, it's just ignored. So I I find it interesting that there, there are some trappings of, of science and real science and science fiction, but other places it's completely ignored. I I tried to think about what the book of course is really about. Mm -hmm. And the book is really about, you know, misfits, uh, Mm -hmm. children that are different and how they, how they might fit into, into things, into society, how they might have Mm -hmm. friends and be accepted. And of course, Meg and her brother are extremely intelligent, her -hmm. her brother off the scale. And so this is in particular talking about children that are very, very smart and how sometimes that makes things very difficult for them socially, to fit into school, to fit into other places. So if you look at it that way, of course, it's a huge impact. I think that's one of the reasons my wife really resonated with it when she was 13 years old. I think mm-hmm. she was very much in that situation. So in those parts, it's, it's I think, portraying the feelings and the inability to fit in. And then, you know, what the real strengths are that you have and how they can be used for fitting in and to do good things.
0: Yes. I, we very much agreed that sort of the feeling of misfit and the difficulty growing up was one of the parts that really held up and rang true. Um, We all kind of remember what it was like to be at that stage of that Meg was at. And it reminded us a little bit on the sort of gifted children theme of maybe Ender's Game, which is a, a different, a different topic perhaps, but a different discussion. But I do feel like perhaps Orson Scott Card, maybe he must've read that book at some point. Who, Who knows? going back to the the science fiction versus fantasy feeling it does feel like the this the, the science fiction veneer feels very thin when you examine it like i was shocked going back cuz i remember this is science fiction like my copy that I reread, but this had a genre sticker when, when you put it in the library, the library I work at, you, you put genre stickers and had a little rocket ship. There are no rocket ships. Of course, <laughs> you don't have to have a rocket ship or something to be science fiction, but I'm reading going, this feels much more like a work of fantasy to me. Um, you know, you mentioned the centaurs and the flowers that enable you to breathe. And that's just one thing that made it feel more like a, um, a fantastical story than a work of science fiction. I think that was a really good a really good observation like the the atmosphere a flower is not going to keep you from suffocating probably uh, for a wrinkle in time and the rest of the time quintet books for that matter and this is we started to get into this a little bit in the previous question before we started to research and reread this book for this episode we had um, all thought of this as falling clear into the science fiction category On closer examination, we're not so sure what genre it is. I've read articles that described it as science fantasy, making note of certain elements like we've discussed that don't usually appear in science fiction. You've touched on this a little. Do you have any further thoughts on the genre for this book? Should we just call it speculative fiction and not worry about being more precise?
1: So I've thought about this too, and it's a tough question, but I would put it firmly in the category of fantasy. Mm -hmm. And it is using some of the ideas of science at the time, certainly in 1963, some of the speculative things that were being talked about was, you know, how could we do long distance travel? We, we have the fundamental speed of light as the limit. We know that. So are there any ways around that? So this idea of the fourth, the fourth dimension being time, and I think that's stated explicitly in the book. So we'll say the fifth dimension, um, that if you can reach out into the fifth dimension, you might be able to do this instantaneous travel to any two points in our three-dimensional, four-dimensional with time universe. So it was kind of an interesting idea. And so Madeline Wingo certainly uses that as a a way to get our, our characters back and forth with some of the trappings of science. She also uses science as, as being good. Her father's a scientist, her mother's a scientist. um, Learning is good. Intellect is good. And so she's, she's kind of using that as a, as a device, I think. But I think with all of her other fantastical elements, um, uh, stars that are people and, and uh, are able to talk and to um, uh, be human they're able to disappear and reappear. They can look long distances. The happy medium can look long distances. Uh, uh, there's, uh, there's communication mind to mind. There's mind control. So I, I think in my mind, it falls firmly in fantasy. There are other examples, I think, of fantasy where the authors are trying to use some aspect of science and they might use it as a way to explain magic or a way to codify magic or to give it rules. So it's kind of a science trapping to something that's inherently fantastical. So it it, it doesn't feel quite that mainstream fantasy, absolutely. But I think Madeline Lingle is basically writing a fantasy book.
0: You know, I I think I agree with you. I think all that you said is is true. And I also be interested to hear your thoughts on this. I feel like what you get in this book that you don't usually get in science fiction and you often see in fantasy is there's this, this sense of fighting this overwhelming evil, like that feels to me a lot like, like high fantasy, like Lord of the Rings. Like I was reminded sort of repeatedly of Lord of the Rings while reading this book. I kind of would love to know what Madeline L'Engle read growing up. She's clearly a, she's clearly a very well-read person. Like you see that from all the literary allusions she put in her book. Like, I think it's interesting. She, she clearly was elevating science and math in her book. Um, even if she was maybe doing it in a shallow way, as I think you stated, but she was also putting in different quotations, um, and allusions and references. So you see her kind of just Pulling together things that I get the sense meant a lot to her, but I wonder—I do wonder—if she was inspired um, by by Tolkien and other other works of of fantasy. I I feel like she's pulling from you know, sort of maybe some of the same folklore and myth that um, and that perhaps he was pulling from.
1: I, I think you're probably right, and I think the Tolkien fantasies played such a big role in the development of anyone who was writing speculative fiction or fantasy or even science fiction at the time. Madeleine Lingle written many books, of course, and a lot of those books deal with families and family dynamics mm-hmm. and growing up in a family. And so I think that's that's the core of this. And as you say, she's using kind of a hero's journey in a way, Mm -hmm. uh, facing extreme uh, evil, extreme duress and overcoming it. So those are those are, yeah, classical and, and never ending themes.
0: Can you talk about what kinds of things that you as a physicist or as a scientist Think about when you see portrayals of your profession or scientists in general in fiction or on TV shows or movies.
1: So in, in general, <clears throat> almost no one gets it right when they're talking about it in unless it's unless the person who's writing about it is an actual scientist and, and understands fully. It's very hard for someone who's not in the sciences to get it right. And I, I'm afraid that most portrayals, certainly in any other media than, than writing, um, usually falls flat very badly. Some of the ones that do succeed, they're basically uh, uh, biographies. They're, they're biopics mm-hmm. of a scientist where it's the focus on, on the individual scientists and, and their accomplishments. Those, those can work. Otherwise, I, I think someone who's not a scientist it's not that they can't appreciate science or understand a fair amount of science, but I don't think they understand how a scientist works. And one of the basic flaws in many portrayals is the so-called lone scientist. Mm-hmm. There are very, very few lone scientists and and that's historically correct as well. There are some famous examples of lone scientists and Albert Einstein is one of them. So he's caught the public imagination, And it goes both in good ways and bad ways where the lone scientist can accomplish tremendous amounts or for good or evil in the case of of fiction. But in reality, science is done as a group project. It's done where scientists work together, usually with engineers, to make something actually happen that is of relevance to society. Good science can be done by... Uh, a leader, but that leader is almost always a teacher leading a group, um, trying to find funds to do the work, talking to many, many people, uh, dealing with many people, working with many people. So I think that's the aspect that really gets missed. And it is hard to portray because it's much less of an interesting story to say, well, I didn't do the work. 150 people did the work so it's it's hard to really see that mm-hmm. again some of the um movies or or other uh, media like that that have caught it correctly have been ones where a journalist has gone and followed a certain scientific event and i'm thinking of the one which was a documentary of the discovery of the higgs boson and interviewing scientists and 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 being at cern the um, the actual scientific facility where the Higgs boson was discovered and, and following it for years. And that's one of the few um, uh, 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 movies or anything of that type that really, really got it right. But then again, these are journalists embedded and doing mm-hmm. a great job like journalists can do if they actually understand the story they're trying to, to, um, to talk about
0: like deep investigative journalism as opposed to a real quick piece. That's, yeah, I I do enjoy when someone does really in-depth work like that. I think it really shines a light on lots of different facets of something. That's a really interesting point about the the sort of collaborative aspect of science. I hadn't thought about that as a non-scientist. What I usually notice, which I I could be wrong, but it seems to me that oftentimes scientists on TV shows or movies – appear too young to have the credentials that they have. And they seem to like the, the narrative seems to designate them. Oh, they're, they're the one that does the science. And then they do all the science, which it seems impossible for one person to know all the specialties to me. But,
1: um, <laughs> Yes, because it is impossible and it has been impossible for about the past 300 years.
0: But yeah, I guess the fact that no one gets it right isn't surprising, but unfortunate. <laughs> um, Perhaps you've already partially answered this, but the next question is: Are there any tropes related to physics and physics that are pet peeves for you when reading or watching TV movies that feature them?
1: Sure, and I think we did talk about some of it. Just simply that it's not a one man show. That's that's totally ridiculous in modern science. Mm-hmm. But you know, some of the tropes have some elements of truth. Um, people that are interested in science, people that are. Uh, intellectual in that way, they do tend to concentrate on their learning and the science and sometimes they're not socially as, as, uh, as comfortable as um, other people are. So the socially inept scientist is, is a trope that can be bothersome, but I'll have to admit there's, there's some truth in that. Um, I think that the idea that you brought up that's, that a, a scientist can do everything and know everything uh, is is very irritating, especially when someone who is being asked about particle physics all of a sudden knows everything there is to know about the physics of biology or the physics of materials or any number of different things where um, certainly we try a scientist tries to be broad enough to understand modern things, by no means can we do everything like is portrayed in most fictional accounts of of a scientist. So that's that's probably the that's probably the worst.
0: Even as a lay person, those types of physics seem very different. Um, In general, how do you feel about books that feature physics, physicists or or scientists? Do you seek them out? Do you avoid them? Or are you just neutral?
1: So I, I love science fiction. And so in that way, these are authors who might actually be scientists, who are writing about fictional events. And I seek those out because a good science fiction writer will take the science that we know, will extrapolate it in some way that, that is, is reasonable, hopefully. And it's coming, commonly kind of assumed that a, a science fiction author is given one free card to allow them to posit something that is beyond what we know right now. And so that might be faster than light travel, or it might be contact with an alien civilization or something on that order. And that then gives it its, uh, its flavor and its, its real interest in you know, speculative fiction and the, and the future. So those I do seek out. And the ones that I think are, are successful are the ones that do not violate this rule of you get one free card for doing something that's unknown. If they violate, violate that too much, it kind of becomes fantastical. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in other places, I typically don't read very much about scientists or about science other than summaries of current events in science out of, out of my area so I can keep uh, track of the trends and what's going on and discoveries. Uh, but the other is, is journalists sometimes can do an excellent job in as you say embedding themselves with a scientist or a scientific team and those those kinds of reports are exceptionally good when done well because they they really not only talk about the scientist and the science but they put it in co- usually in context of the society and that's what's important is, you know, where science fits into society, where we're going with that and, you know, uh you know, what we do in terms of supporting it and seeing what we can accomplish with it.
0: How do you feel about A Wrinkle in Time as a book?
1: Well, I'll have to admit, my arc is very much like the person you described, where I was somewhat disappointed that it wasn't as impactful to me now as it was when I first read it. But again, thinking realistically about it, it's, it's not meant for, for me now. It's meant for me when I was 13 or 15 or Mm -hmm. 16. And I think that the impact then, even though I was in my twenties, I think I saw where it was going, what it was trying to do and appreciated that fact and was, was, uh, impressed by its, its writing and its capabilities to do just that. And I think it deserved the Newbery Award. I think the other thing that's happened is we have a lot of writers doing this now. We have a lot of very good writers doing this now. So this was, you know, flawed in a way. It, it wasn't, but it, but it was new and different in that way as mm-hmm. well. And so I think we have so many other examples now that it would be hard to go back to to an original like this and, and, and be and have it be as impactful as it as it was then.
0: Yeah, I think
1: I think it, the book opened the door to a lot of other books we wouldn't have otherwise. I guess I would just say it's really good to have a retrospective like this. Uh, I would not have reread this book, I think. Otherwise, I'm glad I did. And I think we could probably benefit by going back and reading some of the other books that we've read when we were younger. And it's interesting to think about some books can continue to enrich as you read them, as you as you go through life. And I think some books, maybe they're just meant for a specific point in life.
0: Yes, I completely agree. That's part of what we've been doing on this podcast is going back and revisiting our childhood books and It's been quite a journey because some things hold up, some things don't, some things do a combination, and it's been worth doing, but you never quite know what, what the experience is going to be like. Anyhow, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this bonus episode of These Books Made Me. Join us next time when we'll be discussing a book in which somebody holds a mock trial. It's our last book of the season. If you think you know which book we're tackling next, please drop us a tweet. We're at PGCMLS on Twitter and hashtag TheseBooksMadeMe. You can also send us your questions at TheseBooksMadeMe at PGCMLS.info. For historical deep dives and read likes, check out our blog, which is linked in the episode notes.